Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Brown Girl podcast. This show exists to provide representation for women of color in the environmental space, to highlight their stories, and to educate the masses about how to be more eco-friendly every day. From gardening to thrifting, minimalism to veganism, sustainable business owners to influencers, environmentalists to activists, we are all on a journey to taking better care of our bodies and our planet. I'm your host, Ariel Green. Within the sustainability movement, we talk a lot about reducing the amount of things that we're consuming. Overconsumption has led to overfilled landfills, a depletion of natural resources, and let's admit it, credit card debt. Our guest today is the one and only Aja Barber, the author of the book Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. I would quickly describe the book as a call for change from consumers and corporations to think about how they buy and sell. I would really encourage you to read or listen to the book because it's so much deeper than that. Aja talks about how Black American slaves were environmentalists and stewards of the earth, how colonialism has destroyed countries in the global South, and how we can shift our destructive habits as consumers. But I would highly recommend that you read Aja's book. I typically buy my books online from Better World Books. When you're buying books, it's always best to shop locally, shop small bookstores. So if there are any local bookstores near you, definitely try that first. Or you can check out the library. Or if you're more of an audiobook person, I would recommend Libro FM. Libro FM is a great alternative to the options that line the pockets of billionaires. <laughs> Libro FM allows you to buy audiobooks from local bookstores in the U.S. and Canada, and they split the profit from each purchase with local bookstores, giving the customers the power to keep money within their local economies. You can buy books a la carte or sign up for a monthly membership. Click the link in the show notes to sign up and use the code CHOOSEENDY for a free audiobook with a new membership. Please note that if you do use that link, then I will receive a small commission with your purchase. Speaking of supporting the show, I just want to remind you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to do on any Apple device. Just search for Sustainable Brown Girl Podcast on Apple Podcasts. And be sure that you are following the show if you aren't already. Then scroll down past the recent episodes until you see the review area. Now, I'm sure you want to leave a five-star review, so go ahead and do it. It really helps with getting more people to discover the show. Also, if you have a few dollars to spare, please consider becoming a Sustainable Brown Girl patron on Patreon. You'll get access to podcast episodes before they release, and you can submit questions to upcoming guests and also submit topic ideas. A link to the Patreon page is in the show notes. And if you're not already, be sure to follow Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and use the hashtag Sustainable Brown Girl to be featured on the page. And if you guys didn't know, I record video from almost all of our podcast interviews. So if you want to be able to see the full video version, head over to the Sustainable Brown Girl YouTube page and subscribe. 
Sometimes our, our guests will show something to the camera that you obviously can't see if you're just listening to the audio. So it's, it's so much fun to be able to see all these sustainable brown girls live. A link to the video for this episode is in the show notes. One last thing before we get into this episode, we are going to start incorporating little pop quizzes into each episode. Now, I know we have some consistent listeners, so this might be easy for you. Each week, I'll recap something that was covered in a past episode. It could be last week's episode or one from two months ago. If you know the answer, simply DM me on Instagram at Sustainable Brown Girl, and I'll give you a shout out in the stories if you get it right. So here's an example and our first pop quiz. In last week's podcast episode with Cola B. Talkin from Black in the Garden, which 90s cartoon did we say we both enjoyed watching as kids? <laughs> this one should be super easy for you gals. So if you know the answer, please send me a DM on Instagram at Sustainable Brown Girl, and I will give you a shout out in stories. Okay, now let's get into this super exciting interview with Aja Barber. Big thanks to our podcast coordinator, Ariel, with two L's for being brave and bold and securing such amazing guests on this season. We out here, y'all. Today's featured sustainable brown girl is Aja Barber, a writer, personal stylist, and style consultant whose work explores the intersections of sustainability, race, and fashion. She's the author of the book, Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. Thank you so much for joining us today, Asha. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So I always like to start at the beginning to find out like what inspired you or what kind of led you down the road to start a journey of being more sustainable. Um, I've always cared about this stuff since I was a kid. Like I love nature. I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up, um, and really beautiful area that's full of nature. So I was always playing outside, catching insects, splashing in puddles, swimming in lakes, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Um, and when I was 10 years old, I realized that the world was actually not in a great place. I heard about something called the greenhouse effect, which today we yes. call climate crisis. Um, you know, I learned about the, the killing of the rainforests. I learned about endangered species. And so from that point on, I was like, oh, we have to do better. We all have to change our ways. And so I became that kid that was like, is everyone recycling? I was just <laughs> so, you know, about it. And yeah. that never really changed. But when it came to my wardrobe and fashion, I always liked clothing and I liked style. And I would argue that was some of like my earliest fights with my mother was talking about like the clothing that I wanted first, what my mother was willing to buy because I grew up wearing like a lot of hand-me-downs and a lot of thrifted stuff. And I think that sort of not having the material possessions I need to fit in mm -hmm. really aided in me becoming like a fast fashion consumer in my twenties. Yes. And there just became a point where I realized that all the things that I cared about we're not being reflected in this cycle of consumption I had found myself in. 
And then I wanted to get out, but it was hard and it took a lot of learning. And that journey um, really became a part of my platform and talking about all of that stuff really openly. Because one thing we know about, like, particularly the internet and social media is that social media always presents like a final package that you should be aspiring towards. It doesn't talk about like how hard it is to like, you know, maintain a certain diet, especially if you live in like a food desert. It doesn't talk about how like sustainable designers aren't always dressing plus size people, you know? So I talk about all of those areas in my message to try and give us not only the ability to talk about these systems so we can fix them, but the grace for everyone to say, okay, I haven't been perfect at this, but how can I be a little bit better? And how can we build better systems that include everyone? Yes, 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 exactly. You know, um, just kind of going back to what you said about uh, starting using fast fashion, I can totally relate because also growing up, you know, we thrifted a lot, went to yard sales and stuff. And then when I was in high school, places like, you know, Forever 21 started opening and it's like, okay, now I can have fashionable clothes for a cheap price, you know? Exactly. And so it just kind of becomes like, addictive, I guess, because you, you've gone your whole adolescence with not being able to dress the way you want or to, like you said, fit in with your peers. And now it's like, oh, I can buy all the things. Yeah, you know? totally. No, totally. Yeah. Like that was definitely me. Um, I never had the right clothing and that got yeah. made fun of. And some of the buying habits that we participate in as adults, it's important for us to go back and look at our full history and figure out when we started engaging and buying in a certain way, because sometimes we can track some of that back to maybe like insecurities and trauma that were born out of like childhood or being an adolescent. And I think the more we know that and the more we understand that, the the better we can all be and the more grace we can give ourselves, but also the, the more space we give ourselves to really try and extricate ourselves from these systems that maybe aren't so good for us and don't leave us feeling good. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, So one thing in your book that really flabbergasted me was you, you said that we don't look at slavery. Sorry, I'm I'm like really shifting directions right now. um, You said we don't look at, at slavery as a foundational building block for, you know, like all of the systems of consumption and whatnot. And slavery, you know, like how we learn about slavery in black history, for example, it doesn't show us as stewards of the land that we tended during slavery and it doesn't portray us as environmentalists. And that just blew my mind because it's absolutely correct. You know, we tended these lands for hundreds of years and, you know, we truly were environmentalists in so many ways. I mean, watermelon was brought to North America from slaves who had watermelon seeds, you know, and brought it through the passage. And it's kind of amazing in that way. But yeah, I I would argue that, you know, indigenous people, black people, very much stewards of the land. But when it comes to mainstream environmentalism, it's not our face that you're going to see first. Why is that? Right, right, exactly. Um, I was reading, or I watched a video yesterday, you brought up watermelons about how um, 
watermelon was one of the cheapest things for former slaves to grow. And so, you know, they they grew a bunch of watermelons. And that's kind of how the stereotype from, you know, Black people liking watermelons came from. Yeah. But there was also a very, like, there was a a campaign against watermelon because... Mm. Everybody was actually enjoying watermelon. Watermelon right. was delicious, especially on a hot summer day. Yeah. And, you know, people were having success from growing watermelon. It was becoming something that people really enjoyed. And whenever <laughs> Black people had any level of success, it was just like, oh, no, how do we ruin it? So there became this yes. very active campaign of, like, that slave food. Oh, you enjoy yes. slave food? Which really, that stems from white people feeling like something is being taken away from them because the people that they've had under their foot are suddenly making something out of something beautiful, you know? So yeah, yeah. there was a campaign against turning watermelon into a bad thing. Right. Insane. <laughs> so in your book, you um, talk a lot about colonialism and how white people <laughs> go into, you know, different countries and, and destroy them in you know so many ways. So, without um, I guess maybe going too much into you know how how maybe colonialism has started, but maybe you know looking at how it's affected countries now. We'll say, for example, you know like Bangladesh and India, mm-hmm. who have all these factories um, where the people aren't treated you know well, and it causes so many environmental problems. What are some ways that these countries can recover from colonialism? You know, it's, of course it's possible, but, you know, what would you think some of the first steps are? So the power has to shift back to those countries, the power to, you know, maintain their own systems. And that's really what I think needs to happen most. But whenever we talk about colonialism and you know, that part of Asia, India and Bangladesh, I always tell people never forget that um, British colonialism in that direction was all about disrupting the textile trade to which India was the textile king. And so I think there is this savior narrative that people in the global North love to sort of like tell ourselves, which is like, without us, these countries just wouldn't survive. And it's like, no, that's not true. Actually, India was doing great before the British arrived. They were doing wonderful. So let's start with that and remember that at one point, this country was dominating and killing it in the textile trade. And it was British colonialism that disrupted that. Um, So I would argue that what needs to happen most is a shift in power. Yes, I think it's cool if, you know, certain brands manufacture in India, but there needs to be power given to those doing the hardest labor. And there isn't. The system that we currently have gives all the power to the the brand or the person paying. And that's very, very unfair. Um, Additionally, people say, well, how do we, how do we get to that? And I think what I tell individuals is try and support like designers from the global South, if you can, because that exists. Like we act as if all fashion has to come from the global North and Mm -hmm. mostly white spaces, but that's simply not true. There are thriving designers in every part of the world. And imagine 
if those designers stood on the world stage and got given our money directly instead of us going through X amount of, you know, global North European middlemen. You know what I mean? Imagine if we actually just invested in companies and brands that were doing good things in the global South and gave that power to those brands, that would be a shift in power. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but ultimately what I tell people like me is we have to start spreading our money around. We have to start Mm -hmm. supporting, you know, all sorts of initiatives and we have to build a diverse fashion landscape because currently 90% of the money within the fashion industry goes to like a hundred different companies, which is really crappy. Yes. Nobody wins when like the multinationals control everything. Right. No, so true. So true. And you also mentioned in your book about how, um, like you said, uh, designers in the global South and then, you know, also African designers, they don't have, you know, they just don't get the recognition that they deserve. And then also too, you know, how we send all of our clothes to certain parts of Africa and that also demolishes their own the local you know, trade, yeah, the yeah. local trade, the local textile markets. You know, I talk about Ghana and Consumed, and I talk about Cantamanto, yeah. which, by the way, there are some amazing designers in that part of the world. Seek them out. I share them. I follow them. You know, look at how you can support someone who's already doing something good in that part of the world, because right. we can shift the power a lot of different ways, and that's one way of doing it. But yeah, yeah. the clothing and textile trade that gets dumped on the global South actually destroys the marketplace for any fashion industry there. No one's going to be able to compete with a two cent t-shirt and an onslaught of two cent t-shirts, you yes. know, but additionally, the amount of clothing that arrives in a place like Cantamonto goes to the tune of 15 million garments a week. Now Cantamonto's in Accra, Ghana, and the population of Accra is only 3.3 million people. So wow. basically every week, Five times the population and clothing is arriving in that part of the world and only 40% of it's going to get resold, which means the other 60% just becomes trash and pollution. Yeah. Oh, what a, what a problem. Um, So when it comes to like rethinking how we consume, you also mentioned in your book to think of yourself as a citizen rather than a consumer. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think the phrase consumer is really disempowering. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, you're just a mindless drone who's here to swipe your credit card and buy things, you know? And we see that attitude really reflected in how the world sort of treats women when it comes to shopping. Like the world loves to be like, women love shopping without talking about all of the systems of oppression and ways in which the media and the messaging warps our minds into thinking that we constantly have to be buying ourselves into a better version of ourselves. You Mm -hmm. need new clothes for this. You need new clothes for that. You need makeup. You need this. You need workout wear. You You know, so we love to sort of like make these grandiose statements about people that are ultimately disenfranchised without actually looking behind why that statement is being made to begin with. Um, But calling yourself a consumer is just really disempowering. And I think calling yourself a citizen holds so much power and we need to take the power back because I think when it comes to systems like fast fashion, many of us do feel like 
just powerless. Like, oh, there's really nothing I can do. So I guess I'll just keep buying exploitative clothing that I don't actually need or want. And it's like, no, that's what we have to actually change. You know, we actually have to change the way we interact with the system. Like if you are somebody who used to buy like 68 items of clothing a year, which hello, that was definitely me. You actually have plenty of clothing in your wardrobe. That's great. So like, please wear the clothing you already own instead of buying more. And then I was saying, well, I can really only afford to shop from this place and that place because I was buying 68 items of clothing a year. When I stopped doing that, I could actually put a bit more money into clothing that I felt good about purchasing from and clothing where I knew that people were actually making fair wages, yes. you know? So being honest with ourselves about where we fall in this system and who we are and how much we can do, it's the first thing, because I think in our society, we all go like, I don't have any money. Every person feels that way. And that's the messaging that also, of course, happens in our society is when you live in a society that constantly pushes consumerism and keeping up with the Joneses, there's this there's this thing that happens where everybody feels poor. Everybody mm-hmm. feels it at some point, but that's not necessarily true, you know? So like understanding where you fall in the system and who you are and all of this is really important. And then once you start to understand that, what do you do next? You know, if you are the person who really is, you know, in an impoverished place, then like, you're probably not the person who's propping up the system by buying 68 items of clothing a year. The right. reason the system moves so fast is because that amount of buying is happening, you know? So like a person that's truly disenfranchised didn't create the system and doesn't maintain it. But I think we need to realize when maybe we are the person that is maintaining the system. And if you are that person, the easiest thing that you can do is stop. Stop. Yeah. That's the first thing. Yes, yes, exactly. And to, um, you know, I see a little bit within the um, sustainability um, movement, I guess, especially online, um, how maybe we've stopped shopping fast fashion, but now there's so many sustainable brands and they kind of are also targeting us in a similar way with ads and whatnot. You and you can't replace fast fashion <laughs> consumption with sustainable fashion consumption at the same speed and not expect mm-hmm. the same problems to happen. That's right. really it. Like if you're buying 68 items of clothing a year, whether it's fast fashion or sustainable fashion, it doesn't matter. That's not how we should be operating. Yeah. So yeah, I do see it. I see the ads. I see the marketing. And then some of it, I think you have to realize, especially for like smaller brands, the reason why they're advertising to you is because Instagram doesn't actually show their content a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So for Mm -hmm. a lot of people I know that own ethical and sustainable brands, they're basically like, if you do not advertise on Instagram, no one will see your content. If you are Mm -hmm. a business and you do not choose to advertise, there's no point to being on Instagram. So like understanding that that's why you're, you're seeing a lot of advertisements is important, but also realizing that just because you were seeing the ad does not mean you have to buy is also important. Right. So true. So what do you think about, there's also a part in your book where you talk about um, uh, creators being paid, you know, fairly for for the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And so as 
a person who's, you know, somewhat of an influencer, I have brands reaching out to me, you know, wanting to gift me things and, you know, not necessarily having the budget Mm -hmm. to, you know, pay me for the content I create. How do you think that, you know, what, what do you think about that? (laughs) So it's tough because I actually do not take money, um, in exchange for clothing. I will take gifts from brands that I like, but I don't take that much of that because you know what? I don't need to be presenting people with new items constantly because hello, that's part of the problem. I think the, the formula of pay for play can be very faulty because, you know, if you're showing people something that you don't even really like, you know, but you want to get paid, that's not a good thing either. Right. Um, so it's a tough one because I know that not everyone can take the path that I've taken where I don't want to draw an income from my Instagram. Instead, I draw an income from my Patreon, my writing, my speaking. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. path that I've chosen because I don't want to exist in a place where I constantly have to sell people products. Yes. And because that's the path I've taken when it comes to Uh, sustainable brands, if it's a brand that I like, and they give me stuff, I will absolutely share it, you know, if I'm, especially if I actually wear it, you know, there's been people that have sent me stuff where I've been like, I'm never going to wear this and sending it back to you because it's not my style, which also sucks is that I end up paying extra money to ship it back to someone. Um, But um, ultimately, I think what that path has done for me personally, is it's given my platform a level of integrity where people know that if I am talking about a brand on my platform, I have not been paid to talk about it and I actually do like the item because there's no incentive. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's tough because everyone has to do what works for them. But for me, the path to maintaining integrity and not feeling like I'm in a place where I am feeling weird about brands even gifting me things has look like figuring out a way to draw an income, not from that formula at all. So that's my personal thing. I can't tell people what to do for themselves because it's going to be different for every person. But I think when it comes to like small brands, often they just don't have the budget. Right. They really don't. But with big brands, they're trying to rip you off, you know, so people just don't know which is which. And that makes it really hard. You know, like I know a lot of small brands who are like, I would like to give things to people, but I worry that they would be insulted because, you know, they'd be like, why aren't you offering me pay? And it's like, because I don't make that much money off of what I do. I'm barely keeping my head afloat. And that's the reality is that for a lot of small brands, that is literally what it looks like. And for the big brands, they're just sort of exploiting people. And if you can tell the difference between where people are coming from, then, um, you can make an educated decision. But, you know, one of the things I do is if a company reaches out to me and doesn't want to pay me, I always look up what they're valued at online. Mm-hmm. You know, I had mm-hmm. a company worth $5 billion ask me to do uh, something for them and start with, well, we don't have a lot of budget for this. And I was like, listen, if you don't have the budget, walk yourself right out of my inbox because yeah. I know what your company's valued at. And like, yeah. I think you can dig up the budget. You right. know what I mean? So yeah, I would say take all of this case by case. So like if you're someone where you do charge for 
you know, featuring products and that sort of thing. If it's a small brand, look up what they're worth. You can find anything online, you know, yeah. and then you judge for yourself because for a lot of brands, you'll be like, they're really small and I want to promote them. So I'll do this for free. But right. for another brand, you'll be like, oh crap, this is an umbrella band brand of this multinational corporation worth billions of dollars. They should not be asking me to, oh, we'll gift you something. No, pay me. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of looking at it, because you're right. A lot of these sustainable brands are just kind of, you know, starting out. Yeah. And it yeah, it makes sense to, you know, case maybe. By case. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. OK, thank you for that. You know, that's and, I've been struggling with. <laughs> so, look, this is also like it's the way I've built my platform as well, like because I have built my platform with equity. Right. So now I am person that you know, big companies come to me and say, hey, can you do a speaking thing with us? And I'm like, yes. And it costs XXXXX amount of money. Right. But over on Patreon, I advise small businesses for $50 for half an hour because I know that small businesses aren't going to have those big paychecks. So you build an equitable business for yourself by looking at who has the money and going after who has the money. Right. This right. group is not going to rip me off because I know what they're worth, but that means that I can advise this group over here for $50 for half an hour. Yeah. So build an equitable business model for yourself and let's make sure that we're charging the right people accordingly. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about greenwashing. Um, so where where I want to start with this is recently, like in the past week or so, Timberland just mm-hmm. announced their their loop. Their, some it's called Timber Loop. So you know you can send them your old shoes and they'll. Uh, refurbish them if they're still in decent condition and resell them. Or if they're not in good condition, they'll kind of break it down and recycle the parts that they can. Um, And of course, we all know that H&M has their little boxes at the stores. So they also give you a coupon. They give you a coupon for donating. So shop more, bring your own clothing, but be sure to shop more. So this is what I do. I actually, I do. I dump my old clothing on them so they can dispose of it. If there's something that I absolutely can't dispose of, I go and take it there. But when they give me the coupon, I give the coupon to someone who's in line because I'm not going to buy from there anymore because I know Mm -hmm. all the problems with it. But the mom with three kids that needs to like buy some like clothing for her kids, maybe she doesn't have the same choices that I have. So I'm not going to use that coupon, but I'm going to make sure that somebody gets that discount off of them. Yes. People are always like, why are you giving me this? And I'm just like, just take it. They'll look gift horse in the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think that these programs are helpful or do you think it's just greenwashing? I think it's mostly greenwashing because nobody's actually talking about degrowth. Here's the thing. Our planet currently cannot sustain these systems. We use 1.5 Earths every year. Mm. We are burning through natural natural resources faster than they are being created by our planet. And that's really sad because this planet is beautiful and can sustain us all if some people stop taking more than their fair share. So ultimately, I think for a lot of these big brands, if they aren't talking about reducing the new quantities of things that they are producing, then yes, it is ultimately a greenwash. 
Yes, yes. And so, Just what to about put it into perspective? The fashion industry produces 150 billion garments every single year. The human wow. population is only 7.9 billion people. Wow. So, like, we got to start bringing things back down, you know? Yes, yes, definitely. That's. Yeah, that's a crazy statistic. And then I also heard you say before that um, H&M sells 15 million items per day, approximately. I think I need to I don't sure when I saw when I said that is that in the book? Oh, it may have been. Yeah, say if it's in the book, it's been researched. If it's on my Instagram, it's also been researched. But I can't always keep these statistics. Yeah, it was on Instagram. It's a lot. So, but if uh, I said it on Instagram, I read it somewhere yes. for sure. So yes, if it, yes. if that is something, I don't remember all the numbers for everything. Right. But yeah, they're they're burning through quite a lot of clothing, and you know, for I always sort of try and remind people, like who you know what this looks like. So, fifteen million products a day. What is the population of Washington, D.C., which is where I'm, I'm from, the D.C. area? Okay, yeah, the population of D.C. is uh, 692,000 people. So 50, if they're making 15 million products a day, let's just say, let's just round that up to 700,000 people. So mm-hmm. 15 million divided by 700,000. Wow. So basically every single person in DC could buy 21 items from H&M every single day. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of unnecessary items for sure. Yes. Yes, it is. And then don't get me started on the waste because the thing is brands don't have to be transparent about what they're wasting, what they're burning, what they have mm-hmm. to destroy at the end of every season. And right. they aren't transparent about that. And the reason why they aren't transparent about that is because if we actually had these numbers, we would probably never buy from them again. We'd yeah. probably be like, well, if you can afford to waste that much stuff, why am I giving you my money? Yes. So we need more transparency within these systems. And we need to make it illegal for you to destroy excess stock that you've overproduced, really. And it shouldn't be one of those things either where you get a tax write-off for donating to charity because you see a lot Mm. of that happening as well. I see that in the UK. You'll go into certain charity shops and it'll be chock-a-block of like new fast fashion, which you know has been dumped on them by the corporate. But like ultimately, what are they doing besides dumping on a charity and making this a charity's problem? Mm, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that companies could do that. But I have seen new like clothing with tags on them. And it's like multiple different sizes. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's not right. Like, how did this get in here? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then they get well, to write it off their taxes. But what are they doing besides creating stuff that probably won't get worn again and will get trash yeah. and trashing our planet? Yeah, exactly. Wow. When it comes to... um to sustainable fashion, what what should we be thinking? Because, you know, we said earlier that you can't replace your, you know, fast fashion with sustainable fashion. How should we approach you it, you know? At that rate. Yes, I think you yes. should absolutely, you know, if you were in the position to replace some of the purchases that you're making with sustainable and ethical brands, 
do that, yes. But like yeah. the rate at which we're consuming fast fashion, that's not something that should be replicated in any system. Right. Um, what I would say, because people always go, oh, I'm so confused. There's so much like, you know, there's so many different certifications. I don't know where to begin. And I always tell people, look for brands that pay fair wages. Look for a brand that can hold their hand up and say, we can 150% guarantee that every person who sews our clothing was paid above minimum wage, was paid really fairly. Because what you'll find is when you're seeking that out from brands, the vast majority of multinational brands cannot guarantee this. Mm. They will use all sorts of flowery, flowery, flowery language to make you believe that, you know, we are working towards ending slave labor in the supply chain. What does that mean? Yeah. It means that slave labor is happening in your supply chain. Working towards mm -hmm. ending it isn't really like any sort of feather in your cap because when I was in the 90s, like when I was a kid, I learned the phrase slave labor due to like a lot of the stuff that was happening. So we've all known about these problems for quite a long amount of time, 30 years, 40 years. So like, if you're still working towards it, then like, I would argue that maybe you don't deserve to have a business that's thriving because yeah. you should have ended these systems a long time ago. So I tell people, instead of looking for like sustainability credentials and this and that, because all of that can be very confusing, mm -hmm. look for fair wages. And there's actually a book that came out that talks about how um, brands that pay fair wages is actually a really sustainable gesture. So I'll hold on, let me find the book because I always get the title confused. But basically, there's a book that makes the claim that like sustainability and ethics are uniquely tied. Uh, so the book is called Business of Less, The Role of Companies and Businesses on a Planet in Peril by Roland Gayer. And the book makes the economic case that labor rather than green products or materials holds the key to social and environmental sustainability. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, Elizabeth Klein has written about this in an article, I think, for Bath Forbes. And Klein explains in the article that raising, a wa raising wages, um, an extra $100 a week, which is needed to reach the living wage in Bangladesh and India, would immediately cut 65.3 megatons of CO2 out of the global economy. Wow. You wouldn't think that they'd be that directly connected. That's insane. Ethics wow. is connected to sustainability. But if we're just looking at it in the most simplistic terms, right? Mm -hmm. Overproduction is a problem that we have. Scale is a problem that we have. The only way that brands are able to overproduce is by not paying and treating people fairly. Overproduction mm. is brought to you by exploitation. So if we stop allowing for brands to exploit people, we can knock out a lot of the overproduction that's happening. Yes. Okay. Wow. So look for brands that are saying that they are paying their employees fairly. And that they can ensure that. And right. don't fall for any of the language about we're doing this. We yeah. built a well in this city where we manufacture. The reason we had to build the well is because the factory runoff has poisoned all the local water. You know what I mean? Right. Look, don't, don't be distracted by like the piecemeal actions. Look for the brand that says everyone within our supply chain is paid fairly. Okay. 
Okay. That's and a you're going to find that you're not going to get that in a lot of places. You'll get a yeah. lot of everything else, but you won't get that. And then if you're confused about it, write them and ask them, be like, what does this actually mean? You've yeah. said you're ending this, but does this mean that every person who makes your clothing is actually paid fairly? Does this mean that no outsourcing actually happens at the factories where your clothing is made? Can you guarantee that? And then you probably won't get a response. And that's everything you need to know. Yep, exactly. Okay, good to know. I will definitely start doing that because, you know, I see 1% for the planet and carbon neutral. And it's like that that may not be the best. I mean, I can rattle off 20 brands off the top of my head where if you called them and said, was the person that, you know, the person that made my garment where they paid fairly. And with small brands, they'll be like, yes, your garment was made by so-and-so. We're right. a minimum wage employer and this and that, and you could talk to them or whatever. That's the difference between buying from a small brand and buying from a multinational corporation. Yes, exactly. Okay. Awesome. Good to know. <laughs> All right, Aja. Well, we are coming up on the end of this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. And Thank you for having me. Yes. My last question to you is, what does it mean to you to be a sustainable brown girl? Um, I just want to be a carefree black girl, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I think that like our people, we have sustainability in our hearts. Like we are stewards of the land. But I'm trying to focus on being a carefree black girl because I think we as black people everyone looks to us to solve the world's problems. And like, I'm trying to get people to unsee some of these things, you know, to try and pick through these habits. But this year I am focusing on my own joy because without joy, we can't do this work. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So true. All right. Carefree, free, carefree black girl. I'll join you with that. I like that one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining everyone. Please go get Aja's book. Support your local independent bookstore. Yes, it is available in the bad place um, because the bad place was a bookseller first and foremost. But right. I would appreciate it if you would buy it from your indie, you know, yes. let's not give Goliath all our money. That's the message, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Thank you so much, Aja. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. If you want to keep the conversation going, follow us at Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and Facebook. Check out the website at sustainablebrowngirl.com and send any questions, comments, or topic ideas to podcast at sustainablebrowngirl.com. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Donate to Patreon if you can, and be sure to watch the full video interview on YouTube. Until next time, let's continue to make better choices for the health of our bodies and the planet. Thanks for listening.